Okay, if, uh, if you're joining us, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Romans. We're going to do chapter 2. We're going to read verses 10 through six, 11 through 16, actually 10 through 16, but because we have 11 through 16 up there, that's okay. So you can follow along on the overheads there. Then I'm going to ask you some questions to draw you into the text. So now how you all love that. Okay, starting, well, let's start at verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. <laughs> For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles or the unbelievers who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written or inscribed in their hearts and their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So let me 
draw you into the text. One of the things I wanted to go over, and you can keep those questions up there, several months ago, as I was working through the book of Romans, um, I talked to you about how I thought about Judas Iscariot. And as I talked about Judas, it was really a sobering thought that made me feel very uneasy, especially as we're going through Romans. Joseph, or Judas, I should say, was a man who lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus. He sat under the teachings of Jesus, the whole ministry of Jesus. In fact, Judas saw firsthand the incredible integrity of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to the miracles that Jesus performed. In fact, his fellow disciples actually respected Judas so much that they actually gave him charge over the finances. But through all of that, as we went through and we learned about Judas, we learned that he was a counterfeit disciple. He became very good, as, in fact, a master at acting very religious. And yet, as we learned, he was somebody that had never really committed his life to Christ. He never, church, died to self. That's a scary and sobering reality if you think about it. So this begs the question we should be asking ourselves. Have we done that? Can the people that know you and I, can they say, you know, that person's an authentic believer in Christ? So let's dig into the text here. Look at the questions that I put up here because I really want to draw you into the text because church, quite honestly, I'm insignificant. It's the Word of God. That's, that's what changes a person's heart. So ask yourself this. Where in your life do you find irritation, anger, or frustration which reveals a commitment to your own agenda instead of God's? Oh, boy. What happens to the way we communicate or speak when we see other people being blessed by God, yet we're, we're still struggling? Lord, why, why are you blessing that guy over there, that heathen over there, and yet I'm trying to follow you and I'm struggling? In fact, how, how do you and I deal with the guilt of sin when I really want to keep certain sins I love really close and available. They're my go-to things when the world becomes overwhelming. So as we begin this time together in the Scriptures, we need to understand, church, that to come to a saving faith in Christ means that we place our entire life in His hands, not just portions of it. It means that we transfer from trusting in our own self-reliance or something else in this world for salvation to completely surrendering and trusting into Christ alone because you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're not saved any other way. So look at slide four. Last week we were finishing up here in Romans 2. We looked at those consequences. Those who are selfishly ambitious really those who are opposed to Christ, and do not obey the truth. 
but instead they obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, that anger that is provoked by the way we treat God. Put up slide five. Paul warned us in verse nine, if we're going to be selfishly ambitious, if we're not going to obey the truth, if we're going to obey unrighteous ways of life, what does he say? There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man that does not, or I should say that does evil to the Jew first and also the Greek. And you can see the words there. The word flipsis, we're going to review that again for tribulation. And we're going to look at the stenocopria for distress. I want to make sure we understand the text here. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. <clears throat> Whether you're a Jew or also a, an unbeliever or Greek. So last time, or last week, we unpacked what Paul meant when he used those words. And I want to make sure that we understand, because we don't use these words today. We, the word tribulation. And that's the Greek word, as you can see up there, thlipsis. The root word of that is thleo. What does that mean? It means to break, to crush, to press, to squeeze. And I wanted to make sure we understood the history of the word because what did that mean when the Jews were hearing Paul use that word back then? They all knew what a thlipsis was. They all knew what that was. They know what the word thleo means. But Paul would use that to try to help them understand the impact of living a sinful life away from God. So back in the Old Testament days when they would want to separate the wheat from the chaff, they would put the wheat on the floor and then they would beat the wheat. And they would beat the wheat to separate the chaff from the wheat. And the tool that they would use would be a tool called the tribulum. They would use the tribulum to beat the wheat, to, to, to crush it, to squeeze it, to press it. Then Paul links that word with the word distress, stenochoria. That means narrow, distress, confinement, extreme discomfort. So Paul is using these terms to help them understand and describe what the soul of man who does evil is going to go through. And last week I asked you, how has your sin beaten you down? How has your sin pushed you into the tight, discomforting places because you wanted your own way instead of God's way. But then in verse 10, slide 6, we have the opposite. So those who are selfishly ambitious, those who don't obey, those who perhaps unrighteous, you're going to be beaten, crushed, squeezed. Your life is going to be shipwrecked because you want to practice sin instead of practicing holiness. But Paul says, but, that's your clause there, glory and honor and peace to every one who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So the reward is glory, honor, and peace. So you have the doxa. That's where we get our word doxology from. If you've ever been to church a long time, they have a doxology. There's your word. Glory is the word doxa. Then you have tume and peace, irene. So glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, all to the Jew first and also the Greek. I wanted to think about these words, glory. It's a very interesting word. The Old Testament word is kavod. Uh, the, the word has the idea when we think of glory, church, I want to make sure we understand that. 
See, the word has the idea of God's internal qualities, all of God's attributes, all that God is. It refers to his excellency, his worthiness, his greatness, his beauty. Uh, the root term uh, has the idea of something that's weighty. You know, somebody you'll say, some, you'll share something with somebody and they'll go, man, that's really heavy. Man, what you just share with me, that's just, that's just, that weighs me down. But in a positive way here, it's, it's something that's weighty or heavy because we're just, the doxa is describing the excellency, the greatness and the beauty and the worthiness of the Lord, church. So glory can also imply a visible representation. In fact, slide 7, Ezekiel describes it this way. Ezekiel 43, 2, he says, Behold, the doxa, well, actually here, the kavad of Yahweh of Israel was coming from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So you can see the weightiness, the splendor, the majesty, when we say the word doxa, glory to God, you're really trying to bring out, Lord, you are excellent, you are worthy, you are awesome, you are beauty. And then he says honor. The word is me. And when we think of honor, what do we think of? The idea is of someone who is highly esteemed, somebody that is highly recognized. Church, hear me this morning. The highest and most powerful desire. Let me say that again. The highest and the most powerful desire a true follower of Christ should have is living for God's glory alone, not man's. God's glory. If you're doing something that is not for you to be seen, if you're doing it to honor the Lord, you want to live in such a way that the way you're living, they see the Lord living in you, and you're revealing to them that glory. You're showing them by your actions, by your behaviors, choosing not to do simple things, that you are glorifying the very God that knit you in your mother's womb. Amen? So to live for God's glory and honor alone means that a follower of Christ reveals to those around him Christ living in me. We are vessels for him to accomplish his will. But he doesn't just say glory and honor. He uses another word, peace, irene. Church, peace is the opposite of hostility. This peace that he's talking about is for everyone who does good, as Paul tells us here. Think of the contrast here. Glory instead of wrath. Honor instead of that indignation. Peace instead of being the pushed into tight, uncomfortable places, the tribulation. Peace is the opposite of those tight, narrowing, pressing troubles we find ourselves in. In fact, it's not up there, but 1 Peter 5, 7 says, you know what? Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do we do that enough, church? Or do we carry anxiety around because we think we have control over that which is uncontrollable? Oh, it's getting quiet, Dr. Carter. So Paul is speaking here of the peace with God that is in our hearts, in our minds, in the full enjoyment of being with the Lord for all eternity. Contrary to what others teach you, when you drop dead, it doesn't end here. Whether you're a believer 
or an unbeliever, we're going to cover that in a few minutes. You know, your body is going to stop and your soul is going somewhere. Slide 8. I want you to consider what John says in John 17, 3. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? That you may gnosk, you may intimately know you, Lord, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. By the way, you see that word and there? God doesn't put words in the Bible. Right? Look at look look it up there, church. In case anybody tries to tell you that Jesus is not God. That's a connecting word there. True God and Jesus Christ. Co-equal, co-eternal. I'm not going to go into the Granville Sharp rule because Dr. Carter could do that next time to explain what that means. But that and is what we call a, a copulative. So basically, you have true God and Jesus Christ. Co-equal, co-eternal. Jesus Christ is the one you have sent. See the word up there? Sent. The apostolos. Amen? Now the righteous, the unrighteous, suffer. They're broken. They're crushed. They're squeezed in these uncomfortable places because they are under the wrath of God, God's hatred of evil and sin. Church, hear me this morning. God's wrath. That's the orge, his anger against sin. Will It will reveal itself. <clears throat> it will pour itself out on the great judgment day, the great white throne judgment. But the righteous, however, even though they will suffer here for a while, they will have eternal life with Christ. So this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Gnosca, that may, they may know you intimately. You are the only true God and Jesus Christ who you sent. And then let's look at verse 11, slide 9. A very important verse. For there is no partiality with God. Prosopolisia. What does that mean? There's no partiality with God. We don't talk that way today, Pastor Jack. I know. Well, that word partiality means literally to receive a face. In our vernacular today, it means to show favoritism. Back in that day, they would say to receive a face, that would mean to them showing favoritism. So what can we glean from this text here this morning? Verse slide 10. God, hear me this morning, does not show favoritism to people just because they're wealthy or just because they're educated or they're famous or they're moralistic. God does not show favor to no one. The Bible says God is no respecter of persons. All men and women, whether you're a pastor, elder, deacon, doesn't matter who you are, President, doesn't matter if you're the big CEO of a company, all men and women will stand equal and they're equal footing on the day of judgment. If you're in church and you're serving, doesn't mean you're here and everybody's here because it is appointed once for a human being to die and then the judgment. Please understand something this morning. There's no partiality with God, there's no second chance. I like how Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones 
explains this verse to us, slide 12, about there is no partiality with God. Dr. Jones says this, the literal meaning is that there is no lifting up of the face where God is concerned. That is, people stand in the presence of God with downcast heads and faces because of a sense of shame. <clears throat> God does not show favoritism. He does not lift up the face of one more than another. Amen. So here we see God contrasting with man. So church, because of the fall of mankind into sin, it is very difficult for any person on earth to really be an impartial judge. I mean, think about this, church. Think about how lenient you and I are with our own sin compared to how we judge others. Ever notice that? How lenient we are with our own sin, but we don't seem to be that way with others. You know, it's easy to let ourselves off the hook or to justify our own sinful behavior because we want what we want. Well, Peter spells it out for us pretty well. Slide 13. Peter says, If you address as Father, that's God the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay here on earth. Peter says, if you address the Father when you call upon him, he's an impartial judge. He doesn't play favorites. He says, conduct yourself. What does he mean? He says, listen, you need to behave yourself as a holy person, fearing God while you're here on earth. Do we do that, church? Because we are biased. We often tend to think that God thinks the same way we do. Oh, God must think the way I do because I'm always right. Nah. Ask my wife, five minutes with me, you'll find that's not true. But Paul and Peter, they make it very clear in the text that God's not like us at all. In fact, pretty much the time when we're thinking one way, it's not really the way God's thinking. This is why we beg you week after week, plea with you, Dr. Carter and I, when we're preaching, get your skull into the scriptures. Feed your skull. Feed it, church. Feed your heart and mind. Get into the word. It is truth replacing the lies that you hear, that you're bombarded with. Church, hear me this morning. When it comes to God being the judge, we've already learned that his judgment is always according to truth. Not our truth, God's truth. God does not play favorites with people. He doesn't strike backroom bargains or deals with people. He is never prejudiced, nor is he influenced by any of those considerations. Romans 2.12, still the next slide, 13, I should say. Look at how Paul, Paul wants to unpack this. He really wants to make sure you understand this. Paul says this, For all who have sinned under the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So all who have sinned, who didn't have the law, didn't have the Ten Commandments, they will perish without that. All who have had the Ten Commandments and were given the law, they will be judged by the law. Now, 
I want you to notice how Paul puts people in two different classifications here. And he's doing it for a purpose. So let me, let me help you understand this. So the human beings on earth that are dead in their sins and trespasses are those who sin under the law and those who sin under, under the law. It's important that we understand that the law spoken of here is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments that were given by God to Moses to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Now, <clears throat> knowing that you're all solid Christians, I'm sure if one of your unbelieving friends said, hey, where's that found in the Bible? I'm sure you'd all be able to recite the Ten Commandments and you'd all be able to tell them where it is in the Bible, right? Yes, you're right. You're right. Exodus 20, starting at verse 3, and Deuteronomy 5, starting at verse 3. Guys are awesome. Good job. So then the Jews who had the law, they're going to be judged according to their greater knowledge. They know better. They will be held more accountable because they know better. The Gentiles, the unbelievers, <clears throat> who perish without the law, will still be judged, but according to the more limited knowledge that they had. They still had God's witness, church, <clears throat> in creation. They also have the witness of right and wrong. God gave every human being a conscience. Hear me this morning. Hell is a very real place. It is not the way Hollywood has you where you're sitting on a sandy beach sipping a martini and everything's good with your friends. Hell is a place of torment. It is a real place. Look at Luke 17 when you get home. It is not, here's another thing. Hell is not some place of nirvana or meaning this unconscious existence. That's a lie. That's a Hollywood, New Age lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Hear me. It is a place of everlasting torment, pain. There will be weeping, wailing, suffering. There's no you do your three years of probation, and then you're at. There's no ARD. None of that, church. There's no pardons. There's no parole. Please understand it. Sin generates consequences. The Bible is clear as we are seeing the text. Slide 14. Where's the found in Scripture? I'm glad you asked. Matthew 13, 42. What does the Bible say? And will throw them into the furnace of fire in the place where there will be what? Weeping, gnashing teeth, cursing and freaking out, and screaming and wailing. Slide 15. Romans chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Think about a church. So the unbelievers, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. How about slide 16? How about Ephesians 2.12? Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. Now again, he's writing to believers. He's writing to believers. He says to believers, guys, remember that you were, at that time, you were separated from Christ. You remember when you were dead in your sins. You were separated from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in this world. So what's Paul trying to get across? 
So we know from the scriptures that the law was given to the Jews, but was not given to the Gentiles. We know now from the, what the Bible teaches that the Gentiles will be judged just as they are. Paul clearly stated, for all of sin without the law will perish without the law. What is this showing us? This is talking about sin. It's not talking about works-oriented religion. This shows us that God is fair and He's just. It also shows us His impartiality with mankind. So then, the Gentiles who sin without the law, meaning had no possession of it, they were never taught the Ten Commandments, had no understanding of it, they will be judged and punished as a person who did not have the benefit of that law. The Jews, however, received the written law, and they will also be judged accordingly. So now we need to make an important point here. This has nothing to do with salvation. Man is not saved by works. He's not saved by his own actions. He can never be good enough on his own to save himself. There's no way that you on your own can make yourself right with God without the shed blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life. doesn't matter how good you try to be. doesn't matter all the good things you do. Paul is trying to make it clear, crystal clear, that being judged really isn't a matter of whether a person has the law, but it's all a matter of sin. Why was Paul doing this? Well, you got to remember, <clears throat> back in Paul's day, the Jews foolishly felt that because they were Jews, they had the law, they thought they're okay. They felt they were exempt from this judgment. And they did not need to believe in Jesus. They felt they had nothing to fear. They thought that they had the law and that would save them. But one thing that the Jews and Gentiles had in common, as well as you and I, is indwelling sin. And that applies to all of us up to this moment right now today. God's judgment is concerned with sin. Each are judged according to their own sins. It is a sin, and only sin, that has separated you and I from God. Slide 17. What does Paul say? Later on we'll see this. It doesn't say some. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. For the payment, your paycheck for sin, is death. We want to make sure we also understand this word perish, as Paul uses it in verse 12. The word perish does not mean that you are obliterated from existence. doesn't mean that at all. It has the idea here, church, of everlasting destruction. It's not popular to preach this, but my job is to preach the whole counsel of God. This is a statement, then, of those who are outside of the life of God. And the warning goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah, slide 18. Isaiah 66, 24. By the way, the whole Bible is all God's Word. The Old Testament is every bit as important as the New Testament. All 66 books are important. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 66, 24, Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. Me meaning Yahweh. Their worm will not die. Their fire, their fire will not be quenched. And they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. 
<clears throat> clarify one other point before we move ahead. It seems that the Jews may experience a more severe judgment than the Gentiles. Why is this? Because sin had been defined for the Jews in the law. They knew better. And if you're sitting in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, you know better. You know better. The law to you and I, who are believers, and to them, make it perfectly clear what sin is. The Jew was in a more advantageous position than the Gentile because the Jews had the teaching and the training. So the standards will be higher that is applied to them as they, as opposed to the Gentiles. They had the greater light. They had the greater opportunity and will to be judged according to light. They saw the miracles. They saw how God delivered them. But the sinful Jew as well as the sinful Gentile will both go into perdition together. Together, church. Keep that in mind. God is an impartial judge. Slide 19. We've read this before. Make sure you highlight it in your personal Bible. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that one, each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body according to what he or she has done, whether good or bad. It should also be made clear that each time you and I hear the gospel preached, our responsibility increases as well because we know better. In fact, the more you and I grow in grace, the more that we grow in the understanding of the Word of God, our responsibility increases. Slide 20. Let's unpack that. Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are made right before God, but the doers of the law will be justified or made right. <clears throat> Why in the world did Paul make this statement? Well, as we've been learning, the Jews thought that they were okay. They had the law. They were right with God. They felt they did not need to fear God's wrath. They felt they already had some special secret or some special relationship with God. And Paul, right here in this verse, knocks that out of the park, says some straight, he says, listen, it's not just the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law. You need to come to church every Sunday. You can hear the scriptures unpacked and taught, but then when you leave the church, you go living like you did before you ever got saved. You heard it, but that doesn't make you just. But when you put what you learn into practice in your life, that changes things. That changes things, church. We need to take it to heart. Hear me this morning. Just coming to church on Sundays, hearing the word preached, has no value at all if you and I do not put what we learn into practice in our lives. The lived out moments day by day in our lives. Putting it into practice. The law demands that it should be obeyed. Here's the question. Are we putting into practice the things we are being taught here week after week? Do we have that respect for God? In fact, here's the question. 
when we're out there living in the world on the streets, do the people that know us say, hey, they have a, they have a respect for God? Would they be able to say that about us, church? Paul's saying, listen, to hear it isn't enough. It has to be put into practice. It has to be obeyed. So that's what Paul was dealing with in the Jews. And in fact, the next two verses, he now says, now I'm going to talk about the Gentiles. Slide 21 and 22. Romans 2, 14 and 15. He goes on saying, now listen, when the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who do not have the law, but do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, these Gentiles that don't have the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law. Now look at this. Try to grasp this. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts, their logismos, their thoughts, alternately will accuse or defend them. So when the Gentiles, who don't have the law, they're instinctively doing the things in the law, they're a law to themselves. So they're showing that work of the law literally inscribed into their hearts, their, their minds, their conscience, and, it, and, and it's bearing witness, and their thoughts will either accuse them or defend them. So the Gentiles, the unbelievers, are not off the hook. First, we see here that the Gentiles are without written law of Moses, but they in no way without, they're, they're not being excused. They have a conscience. Because when they do the right things, they know it. What does that mean? God has implanted in every human being a conscience. The word conscience is Latin. It means with knowledge. Conscience is the actual Latin pronunciation of it. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. It is because of this church that they can be judged in terms of a moral conscience which God has given to them. That word written is the word graptost. means to inscribe. This moral conscience has been implanted or inscribed in each of them. And that leads every one of them to a sense of responsibility. Our behavior, as well as their behavior, reveals an innate awareness of God's moral demands. Listen, you know when you sin. You can't walk into Walmart right now and steal everything and walk out without and not paying for it and not know that that's not wrong. We know. We, we've been giving a sense of right and wrong. We can't stand before God and go, well, I didn't know. That, that's just not the way it works. He says they do instinctively the things of the law. That word instinctively is the Greek word phusis. It means nature. So God has implanted in every human being the things of the law. Even, listen, if you and I went to the remotest part of the pagan nations that have never, ever heard of God, had never heard of it, you can go to those nations, those tribes, stealing is wrong. Lying is wrong. Killing and murder and stealing is wrong. Those, those nations that have never heard anything about the Word of God teach their, chilling, their children stealing is bad, lying is bad, all of those things is bad. 
they, without knowing why, strive to attain a certain moral standards. And then Paul continues through this theme when he says, their conscience bearing witness, the faults alternately accusing or defending them. So what does that mean? Our conscience, church, is evidence of a moral nature. It is proof to you and I that God is bearing witness of himself in our hearts. We can think of the conscience as a voice that tells you and I that certain behaviors are wrong and we should refrain from doing those things. Those things. So it alternately accuses or defends us. Hear me this morning. I'm almost done. Whether we like it or not, that voice implanted in each of us by God expresses its own opinion and it will condemn us when we're wrong. Thoughts, your imaginations, your reasonings. Here, here's, here's an example. He says, thoughts, alternately accusing and defending them. Logismas, your reasoning, your imagination. One example would be when a person who is married, let's talk about somebody that has stood at an altar and said, for better, for worse, for richer or poor, and sickness and health, to death do we part. Right? Somebody that's married. But that person begins to entertain a sinful fantasy life. Maybe he sees an attractive woman at his job, or the woman sees an attractive man at the job, and somehow their eyes meet. The next thing they, they know is they begin having lunch together. They begin to share problems that they have together in their relationship, and things begin to develop unhealthily. And in the beginning, their conscience is saying, Stop! Stop now! You're married. You know that behavior is sinful and wrong. It would seem then that the business of our conscience is more of a function of telling us what is wrong and condemning us if we do it. So we are to obey our conscience, church. This is why the unbelievers are just as responsible. Even though they do not have the law of Moses, it by no means suggests that they do not have a standard by which they can be judged. <clears throat> Their conscience proves that there is a standard. Let me ask you this question this morning. Are you listening to your conscience? Slide 24, Romans 2.16. On the day, we'll stop at this verse, on the day when according to my gospel, God will, now, now look at the verse, church. Look at the verse. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. First thing the text makes clear to us is that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but he's also our judge. Where does it say that, Pastor Jack? So glad you asked. Still slide 24. John 5.22. Let's back that up. Let's scripture validate scripture. John 5.22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to who? The Son. Slide 25. 
For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus Christ is not, hear me, you listening around the world, Jesus Christ is not Michael the archangel. Don't let any false prophet tell you that he's Michael the archangel. Don't let another religion tell you that Satan and Jesus are brothers. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus Christ is 100% fully man and fully God. He is God the Son who has existed from all eternity past with the Father. There has never been a time when he did not exist. They are co-equal, co-eternal, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Very important. The Bible makes that crystal clear. The Father would not give judgment for us, whether we go to hell or not, with an angel. The Son of God was the one that was given that. That's what the Bible says. I don't care what man says. The Bible is the final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice. It is to be obeyed and read, and we should build it into our lives. For just as the Father has life in himself, he gave to the Son to have life in himself, and he gave him, that's the Son, that's your antecedent, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Here's another thing. How's your thought life? Take a moment here. This is important. This isn't a game. How's your thought life? What do you fantasize about? What are your secret sins? Because with, with Christ, there are no secrets. In fact, he knew what you were going to think before you did. In fact, before you were even knit in your mother's womb and created, he already knew when he would create you, and he already knew how you would behave. And yet, knowing all that, he still went to the cross for you. Now think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. A gazillion years before he even created the solar system and earth and all the things that you and I see and, and, and enjoy, think about it. He already knew that he was going to die in your place for your sin, and he already knew every sin you were going to commit before you ever committed it. That's how much he loves you. So how's your fantasy life? How's your thought life? Do you wash your brain through the Word of God on a regular basis to clean out the filth that gets in there? I really got quiet now, Dr. Carter. Are there any secret sins or thoughts that you're pampering or nurturing right now that need to be repented of? Are we actively feeding a sinful fantasy life that we should not be feeding? Our secret sins will be disclosed, church. Think about that. Slide 27, real quick. I'm going to stop right here, I promise. I only have 18 more pages now. I'm kidding. I love this scripture here. The word of God. 
It's not a coffee table book. It's living. The Word of God is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It has the ability to pierce all the way down the division of your soul and spirit, your joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight. We can't hide, church. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. <clears throat> I taught you this before. Back in those days, you know, we handcuffed them, put them in a nice comfy prison, cable TV and all that. Back in those days, they would take the prisoner and they would have him face the court and they would tie a blade right here, sharp. Right here. They would put a blade right here. And the purpose of that was to make sure that if you turned your head or to look away, you would slit your own throat. But they put the blade here to force you to face the court. You were open and laid bare. You had to face the court. That is exactly what is being taught here. You and I are going to stand before a holy, just God on Judgment Day. There is a great white throne judgment. And we are going to have to stand there. And if you are not born again, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, if you have not placed your faith and trust in Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his crimson blood spilled to wash away your sin. The Father took that blood as payment for your sin. If you are not born again, according to the great one, great one through great white throne judgment, you will be cast into Exeteroskatos, the lake of fire. And you will be there with the beast and the false prophet for all eternity. Read Revelation. It's right there in black and white. There is no, I'm going to do three years, and then I'm out on parole. There's no ARD. There's no probation. Listen, it is appointed once for a person to die. doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever, as you've read. You saw the scriptures. You can't claim ignorance. You saw them yourself. It is appointed once for a man or a woman to die, and then the judgment. Hear me this morning. If you know that you need to surrender your life to Christ. If he has woken you up spiritually, I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. I'm going to ask you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as he has been freely offered to you in the gospel. That means you need to repent of your sin. That means you need to confess your sins. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he then is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And in, in the Greek, continually forgive us from our sins, and to continually cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think it's a perfect tense. It's a continuous thing. So listen to me this morning. Every sinful, rotten thing that I have ever done and you ever done, past, present, and future, <clears throat> is completely washed in the blood. Every sin, every thought, everything. How can we sit there and not think that God loves us? When we run away from him, wanting the blessings from him and run away from him, how can we ever think that it's okay to treat the incredible, wonderful, awesome Son of God that way? 
when he already knew what we would do and loved us so much. Don't you know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Doesn't that make us want to confess our sin before God? Someday, every one of us is going to drop dead. Someday, the lights are going out here, church, and you will be standing in front of that Bema seat, that judgment seat. Think that through this morning. Let's bow our heads this morning. I know that was a lot to fit in the ear. I want to ask you to think about this moment. When you think about your life right now, is there anything in your life right now that you need to repent of? Secret sins. Maybe you're struggling with stealing. Maybe you're struggling with pornography. Maybe you're struggling with profanity. I don't know what your sin is. Maybe you're struggling with the booze. That bottle just still wants to woo you away. Satan wants to use the bottle to woo you away. Or he wants to use the drugs to woo you away. Or maybe it's the act of fantasy life. Or maybe you're laying with somebody you're not married to and you're sinning that way. This is the time for you to get right with God. As Spurgeon says, now is the time. Now is the time for you to get right with God. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life right now that you need to bring before the throne room of the Lord? I'm going to encourage you to confess your sins this morning. I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus is the Christ. I believe with every fiber of my being that he is the eternal Son of God. I believe with every fiber of my being that the only way a wretched worm like John Applebach will step into glory because of what Christ has done for me. I was that man before I got saved. I was scum of the earth before he saved me. I wanted everything to revolve around me so I know what sin is. I'm encouraging you right now to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive you. Confess your sin. And place your faith and trust in what he has done for you. So when you draw your last breath, you are at peace with God and you know that you will be ushered into eternity and he will wipe away every tear. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Lord, I I pray that you would press in each heart of everyone here and those listening around the world to open up the scriptures and let you speak to them through your word. Lord, if there's anybody here that you're tugging at their heart, I pray that they would surrender their life to you completely, all areas, not just part of it, but their whole life to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord...